Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Spotlight, Goodspeed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I am one of your hosts, Michael Fling, here on the Artistic Staff at Goodspeed, and I'm so pleased to be joined by my fairest lady and the girl who completely does me in, Annika Chapin, Goodspeed's resident dramaturg and artistic associate. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. I washed my face and hands before I came, I did. That's a good one. That's a good response. This one's easy for this one is easy for responses and for like doting praise on you is pretty easy with, <laughs> with this show as <laughs> with this show as the vocabulary. Um, a couple housekeeping things before we dive into said show. So everyone is aware with the holiday season coming up, we're going to have some programming changes to our biweekly schedule as it is normally. So just so you're aware, our next episode after this will drop on December 2nd. Then we will be two weeks after that on December 16th, and then we will not see you again until 2021. So you'll have to let the first 19 episodes satiate your love for classic musical theater until 2021, when hopefully the sun sun comes out tomorrow and it's a brighter day. (laughs) Um, Consider it an intermission. And so uh, the second part of that is if you're not already following us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at in the spot pod. That's our handle. That's the address. You can get fun musical theater content from us, which in what could be a very dark winter, I heartily endorse. So again, that's at in the spot pod, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Yeah. And Facebook, you could just look for good speeds in the spotlight as well. And that'll bring you there. So with that, Annika, why don't you remind us what our clue was for this musical from last episode and tell us what the answer is. Well, the teaser was that this show had many titles before it settled on its final one, including Liza, Lady Liza, and my personal favorite, Fanfaroon, which apparently is a British slang term, meaning one who brags about himself. Um, And the title that they went for, of course, is My Fair Lady, which also, if you think about it, is sort of a strange title. (laughs) It just refers to the uh, nursery rhyme, London Bridge is Falling Down. Apparently, Rex Harrison did not want the title of the show to be about Liza or Lady Liza because he felt it was sidelining his character. Anyway, there's a lot of history there, but it was not known as Fanfaroon to the great loss of future Broadway audiences. So yes, we will be diving into My Fair Lady with a book and with book and lyrics by Alan J. Lerner and music by Frederick Lowe. And with that, that will bring us to the speed test. Where I do my best to summarize My Fair Lady in 60 seconds. So, Annika, do you have 60 seconds on the clock? I do indeed. All right. I I don't know. We'll see. I know this one well, so I'll do my best, but who knows? All right. Ready? Freddie Einsford Hill, go. Um, okay, so we start at Covent Garden. We've got Flower Girl, Eliza Doolittle. She's Cockney. She notices that this weird bystander guy is taking notes about how uh, on her. She thinks he's a policeman. It's actually phonetics professor uh, Henry Higgins, who is like, I, you are only poor and a gutter snipe because of how you talk. So he ends up uh, meeting 
Colonel Pickering, who is also a linguistics person. He's like, oh my God, we should be friends. Then they kind of start this like bromance living together. <laughs> Eliza goes to them and is like, hey, I want to become a lady in a flower shop. Teach me how to speak better. They, she becomes like their little pet project and they turn her and try to pass her off as a duchess at the embassy ball. Um, and of course she along her way discovers her self-worth and uh, and also falls in love with Freddie Ansford Hill, uh, who is, you know, um, beyond that, I mean, it's just an experiment. I don't really know what else to say. Well, you got one more second. Oh, well, okay. Well, beyond, so she finds herself worth and then ends up not a pretty, uh, I failed. It's fine. Basically, she finds herself worth and that Higgins doesn't really care about her. And so she leaves him, uh, leaves living with him to uh, presumably um, go off on her own and uh, ends in a way that the original story does not, where she uh, comes back at the very end of the show and curtain, which is not how the original uh, George Bernard Shaw story ends. Uh, but we'll talk about that a little bit in um, later sections, I presume. Yeah, I think it's no surprise that you got a little stopped up on the ending of this show. It's a bit of a tricky one. So with that, that brings us to Why God Why? Why God? Why today? Where we talk about the big idea and what connects all the characters and the themes that are driving the narrative of the story. So with My Fair Lady, it's a little bit of a struggle, although we have a, we have a little bit of insight into what the authors intended because we do have an original source material that they don't deviate too much from, but they do make some real diver, um, diversions within it. But it's not a case where the title is going to give us any clues as to what we're looking at or anything of that nature. But I do think centrally, My Fair Lady is a story of identity and what identity uh, means to a person, both uh, on the interior and how they're feeling about certain situations, but also how they present themselves on the exterior. And I would, I would say that in the case of Henry Higgins, he can speak so eloquently and is such a believer in the English language, and yet he can't articulate his feelings for Eliza regardless of what you think those feelings are, he cannot illustrate his real feelings about Eliza through the English language. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have Eliza who can express what she's feeling, but maybe not so eloquently and not with the same style and panache that uh, it equates with her social status. And obviously you have a lot of social commentary within the piece that is reflecting, um, particularly the original Shaw is quite a, uh, commentary on society but Annika when looking at My Fair Lady what do you think do you think that's a fair way to be looking at the piece or is that a little bit of a generalization it doesn't quite encompass whole piece because there are other things in the piece besides Henry's uh, Henry and Eliza's relationship so uh, how do you think all of that mixed together you know what do you think they're saying I mean, I think this one is a bit of a sticky wicket, as they say, because I think there are some things in this show, and we'll talk about this more later, probably, um, that are a little tiny bit in conflict with themselves. So um, one of them is the, as you said, the the original intentions of the Shaw version versus the more romantic musical theater version. Um, I, I think you're right. I think the message that can be the takeaway is sort of look beyond um, 
you know, look into people's souls, look past the trappings of class or what you assume someone is. Um, that's probably what I would say the main um, message is if there can be said to be one so easily. But I, I think there's a lot of other things that are also going on in there uh, in a slightly less prominent manner or at times and not entirely pulled through all the way. <laughs> yeah, I think you just said what I was trying to say, but in better words. So <laughs> maybe we take your version of that. I think that's, I think you're right on the money because it's not so nice and neat as Shaw's original or yeah, I'm not sure that they, they have a grander purpose other than giving musical life to these rich characters. So Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of My Fair Lady. Certainly. Well, this is another one that has very, very old origins, which I always love because I get to talk about weird classical stuff. Um, the very beginning of My Fair Lady is in ancient Greece, which I always love that. Um, basically, this was a folk tale, a version of a folk tale about a character named Pygmalion, who was uh, a sculptor who was disgusted by women and swore them off and then sculpted a woman out of ivory who was so beautiful that he ended up falling in love with his sculpture. Then he prayed to Aphrodite and the statue came to life. He married her. They were in love together. So that story existed. The most famous version of it is in Ovid's Metamorphosis, which was written in 8 AD. And that's kind of the version that we know the best. Um, but it's been a story that has inspired writers pretty much throughout human history. Um, it's inspired lots of different versions of, of things. I mean, you see, uh, you see it echoing in everything from, you know, Shakespearean references to something like she's all that, you know, that it's just the classic story of sort of makeover a guy making over a woman um, in whatever image he wants to see and then falling in love with her for that. Um, Bet you didn't think the movie She's All That starring Fred, Freddie Prince Jr. was going to show up in this podcast, but you were wrong. Um, so yeah, so that's basically where it began. And it was a very, very popular subject, especially in the Victorian era. Uh, so there were a lot of poems and plays. There was even a, a well-known burlesque that was based on this theme. But the best known adaptation of this Pygmalion story is is a play that was written by the writer George Bernard Shaw, um, which he wrote in 1912. So just a little tiny touch of background if you don't know who Shaw is. Shaw was an Irish playwright, critic, polemicist, activist, who wrote more than 60 plays, including things like Man, Man and Superman and St. Joan. Um, he had a lot of very controversial views, but he was a massive figure in literature. He is considered the leading dramatist of his generation. He won the Pulitzer for Literature in 1925, and he is often ranked second only to Shakespeare on the list of British dramatists, even today. So it's, it's really impossible to overstate how beloved and well-known and influential Shaw is. So this play is probably his best known play. He wrote it in, as I said, early 1912. Uh, it had productions in Vienna in 1913 and then New York and London in 1914. And as soon as it was staged, it became very popular and one of his most popular hits. 
And as Michael said, when he wrote it, he was definitely not writing a romance. He was a feminist and he believed in women's suffrage. And he very much wanted to write a play that was about how badly women were treated and how um, it, he wanted this to be a story of female empowerment, basically. So he very much did not have a romance between Higgins and Eliza, even though even then people wanted to, to turn it that way. Um, the ending was similarly ambiguous. Eliza leaves and he found out that the actor who was playing Higgins was sort of sending a look out after her indicating that he was in love with her or something like that and he tried to put a stop to it. It's basically this continuing story of people trying to quote unquote fix the ending so it seemed like a romance and Shaw getting upset and saying that's not what the intention was. We cannot do it that way. Um, which is kind of interesting when you see where it turned out. The other thing that's interesting about this is that Shaw did not want this play to be turned into a musical or an operetta. And this is for reasons that are kind of surprising. Basically in 1908, his play Arms and the Man had been turned into an operetta by Oscar Strauss called The Chocolate Soldier. And the operetta was very successful too successful in Shaw's mind because while the operetta was around, nobody wanted to do his play. So he felt like he had lost out on a ton of income that he would have generated from the play because their operetta was out there. So because Pygmalion was his most popular hit and his biggest moneymaker, Shaw did not want to risk losing the income from the play by allowing it to be made into a musical or an operetta. So he just drew a hard line and said no to everybody. And this was true until he died in 1950. In 1938, there was a very successful film version of the play Pygmalion that was made. And it's funny, Shaw acknowledging that people wanted a happier ending for the piece, wrote a sort of compromise ending that he felt both um, gave Eliza and Higgins a moment, but then included a postscript with what he felt happened with those characters, which was that Eliza and Freddie set up a, a shop and they live together very happily. And uh, that's the romance for them. And she maybe stays friends with Higgins, which is what he wrote in an epilogue to something else. But the producer of the film, unbeknownst to Shaw, went back and added a sort of epilogue where um, Eliza comes back to Higgins and has the line, I, wa I wash my face and hands before I come, which is what she says earlier in the show. So it ended on a sort of happier, um, more ambiguous note. They didn't have that Freddie part. So it, it felt like perhaps they would end up together. And Shaw was very mad about this, but then he ended up winning an Oscar for the movie. So that's Hollywood for you. And when he died, the producer Gabriel Pascal had the rights to Pygmalion and he was able to finally move forward with the idea of adapting it into an operetta or a musical. So in moving forward with the musical adaptation, Gabriel Pascal approached a number of famous composers and lyricists about doing Pygmalion as a musical, notably uh, Roger and Hammerstein, who at that point were the toast of Broadway, as we have discussed on this program many a time, as spotters will recall, but also approached Cole Porter and a number of other composers uh, and eventually got to Lerner and Lowe, who at that point were, I don't want to say washed up, but everyone had kind of thought that they were a little past their prime. 
uh, they had done Brigadoon very successfully and Paint Your Wagon semi-successfully, but had kind of a tumultuous working relationship. And so they weren't, you know, it was a little bit of a long shot, but they were intrigued by the idea, kind of worked on it for a little bit, but then decided they couldn't really get past the other issues that other composers had had, which is that it just couldn't be musicalized. So then Gabriel Pascal actually dies, which resurrects the conversation of whether or not they could turn it into a musical. And it all became very clear to them that when they could abandon the traditional confines of what was a musical uh, in that time, abandoning the idea of a boy-girl romantic relationship as the main plot and a secondary couple that echoes that and and the big choruses and the big things that were so traditional at the time when they realized they could use those tools but use them in different ways uh that kind of unlocked the piece for them and part of that was the 1938 film adaptation starring leslie howard that had been so successful and had changed that ending uh that really that that screenplay and that that version of Pygmalion became one of their guiding principles in terms of forming this musical adaptation. And they felt as a part of that, that they would stick with as much of the original Shaw script as they could and really just adding scenes in between the big act breaks of Shaw's Pygmalion. For instance, showing a little bit more of Alfred Doolittle, Eliza's dad, and what his life was like, going to Ascot and experiencing what we are told about in Pygmalion, Freddie on the street courting Eliza, the embassy ball, etc. So I think it's important to, when talking about the musical adaptation, there are like four dominant personalities that, or dominant characters in the creation of My Fair Lady the Musical. And I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they are introduced to the project, essentially. One of them is Alan J. Lerner, the book writer and lyricist, who has given probably the most accounts of the creation of the show. So the second big personality is Michael Flynn Coven member Dame Julie Andrews, who was the first person attached to the project after having starred in The Boyfriend on Broadway. Uh, but before anything was really on paper, and even though they they were very adamant that they wanted to center it around Henry Higgins, and that that was very much the uh, that was very much Alan J. Lerner's way into the story was through Henry Higgins, they ended up actually getting a young nineteen year old Julie Andrews before they got to the third dominant personality, Rex Harrison. Obviously, a huge. Um, a huge stage star, certainly in uh, the United Kingdom at the time, but also had a bit of a budding movie career, having starred um, most notably as the King of Siam in Anna and the King of Siam, which is uh, uh, the film adaptation of the story that inspired the Roger Hammerstein King and I, uh, a bit of a problematic casting by today's measures. The fourth dominant personality, I would say, in the creation of this is Moss Hart who came on board as the director. So Moss Hart really became instrumental in making the story a version of a Cinderella story, because that is what most appealed to him about Pygmalion as a story, was the transformation of Eliza. And how this ended up into the show, which we'll talk about a little bit later, became this entire getting Eliza ready for the ball ballet, which then which was like a 20 minute ballet in the middle of at towards the end, middle of act one. 
that then came to a song that they thought would be the crowning achievement of the show, which was a number for Henry Higgins, where he coaxed Eliza into actually having the courage to go to the ball called Come to the Ball, which then worked into a solo for Eliza called Say a Prayer for Me Tonight. And that was to be um, the end of act one with the embassy ball opening act two. That was really how Moss Hart found his way into the piece, whereas Al, uh, Lerner found his way into the piece through the character of Higgins. So there is this dynamic back and forth of, that I think, and as we'll get into a little later, still reverberates through the show of, is this Eliza's story? Is it Henry Higgins' story? Where does it all kind of fall, essentially? So with all those personalities assigned, and key, and it's important to keep in mind, I know this is not necessarily how we go about this. This is um, but Rex Harrison had never done a musical at this point and was very nervous about singing with a big orchestra and, you know, headlining a musical. So in catering to his skill set, they decided to approach all of Henry Higgins songs as being basically spoken on a relative pitch, which and then Eliza became predominantly the melody and melodic carrier of the piece and then you have Alfred Doolittle giving you a rumty tum kind of English music hall sound. And then you've got Freddie giving you the big um, operetta style romantic numbers um, and the way that he sounds. So that's how they started to develop the sound of the show, which was they spent a considerable amount of time on until Moss Hart was like, OK, but also like you can't just put these songs on top of. Shaw's script, we need to actually craft a musical. So over the course of a weekend in, in Atlantic City, of all places, the book really starts to take shape. Um, it's like a retreat for Hart and for Lerner, where Lerner works in the morning. They meet and talk over the new pages in the afternoon. They take long walks on the boardwalk and go through the show step by step, and revisions continue. And that happens over this weekend, where it, it, it is said that a lot of work got done that it became influential in how the show actually developed. So rehearsals began in New York uh, shortly after the new year, uh, the ringing in of 1956. And the interesting thing with this is that Rex Harrison came over to America like a week before rehearsals started, had been diving into the text really, you know, by the old school metrics of professionalism being the professional who knows that he is headlining a show and that it is important. Whereas Julie Andrews actually showed up in New York like and arrived in New York the day rehearsals started because she had been spending the holiday in the UK with her family, with her uh, not publicly known, but uh, fiance, the now famous designer, Tony Walton, who, uh, and she had family commitments and things. And so she came over and arrived day of, which really actually influenced how the creative team thought about her. And she came in kind of at a deficit with them, even though she had been committed to the project for a long time, had never really had a big acting role in this way. They So she started at a deficit with them, which plays into one of the major parts of the development of the show, which is Rex Harrison threatening to quit the show because he did not think that Julie Andrews was up to the task of playing Eliza opposite his Henry Higgins. So he threatens to quit. They shut down rehearsals for the weekend and Moss Hart and Julie Andrews and a stage manager are in rehearsal for that weekend where he, what he calls, pastes the performance of Eliza onto Julie Andrews. 
by both accounts, it was a very tumultuous and hard, tough weekend. Uh, but she emerged out of that weekend the star that we now know of. And Moss Hart was very instrumental in that. She credits that weekend with teaching her so much about acting, so much about how you dive in and analyze text and things. Uh, and in its own way is its own mini Pygmalion story within the musical Pygmalion, you know, the musical version of Pygmalion, which is, you know, there it's a fascinating reverberation of uh, of this story that exists inherent to this original production of My Fair Lady. So after that weekend, Julie comes back to rehearsal, uh, totally on top of it, and Rex Harrison is like, okay, great, we can do this. The other problem with Rex Harrison was that he was obsessed with the original Shaw text. And there are tons of accounts of him asking for his Penguin, which was the publishing company version of Pygmalion that he would often reference when he didn't like a line that was in the script. He said, well, why do, what did Shaw say? What did Shaw, get me my Penguin. Uh, and about a couple weeks into rehearsal, uh, Lerner had had enough of that criticism and so went to his taxidermy friend and got a stuffed Penguin that he then threw on stage to uh, Rex Harrison, which apparently was very funny and everyone laughed. And for how uh, tempestuous a personality Rex Harrison was, uh, everyone seems to acknowledge that he was a bit of a hothead, but everyone had great affection for him, even though he was quite the character by all accounts. So this all builds up to their tryout in New Haven, where there, of course, as any new musical encounters, there are some technical issues. And suddenly Rex Harrison really clams up as soon as the orchestra, you know, a 30 piece orchestra is accompanying him and he can't hear himself. He can't hear them, all these things. Um, and the night of opening, he threatens to not go on and says he just can't do it. He's going to make a fool of himself. I, I simply cannot go on. Coincidentally, there's also this major blizzard that hits the Northeast and you have a packed house at the Schubert in New Haven that ends up, you know, waiting. They don't cancel the show, even though Rex Harrison wants them to. The curtain goes up at 8.45 and the show is about four hours long, uh, but the audience is absolutely enchanted with it. And yes, there were things that they fixed, things and things that didn't work that we'll get into in a second, but it by all accounts is one of those magical evenings of theater that everything just clicked and there are, are various um various accounts of how that how that transpired and why that transpired what i think is the interesting part of it is that you have rex harrison who obviously is this titan of straight theater and then you have julie andrews who grew up in vaudeville and knew what it was to kind of throw things something together last minute and sing with an orchestra and, and is a, a the consummate musician that she is and uh by the accounts of people who are there her confidence going into opening and settling in with the orchestra is part of what helped Rex Harrison settle down and ease into the show. And by the same token, Stanley Holloway, who was an old musical musical performer, had done this a million times, was able to sell his numbers and do his things kind of by the fly in a way that allowed Rex Harrison to ease into the show. So all that is to say, a magical evening, but they cut this 20-minute long ballet of Eliza getting ready for the ball. They cut the song Come to the Ball, which they all thought at one point was even going to be the title of the show. They cut it, wasn't working, and they cut her song Say a Prayer for Me Tonight, which ends up actually in Gigi, another Learner and Low uh, piece. And they make a pretty big change 
to the song On the Street Where You Live, which everyone except for Lerner wanted to cut, but he insisted that it could work. They do a little bit of retooling, realizing that after the Ask It scene, Freddie's been in the exact same clothes as everyone else. No one has any idea who he is. So they give him a little additional verse at the top of the song to remind everyone that he's been at Ask It. Then Mrs. Pierce, the undersung hero of the piece, Mrs. Pierce, comes out and reminds everyone that he's Freddie Ansford Hill and then he sings On the Street Where You Live and it absolutely stops the show. And the last little tweak to the show was now that they had cut all these things getting ready for the ball, they were just kind of jump cutting to the embassy ball scene. But Lerner writes a little scene known as the port scene, which is the Pickering and Higgins being very anxious about how people are going to receive Eliza because what had happened in cutting everything else, they never got to a great reveal of Eliza. She was just kind of appearing at the ball in her outfit and in her all done upness, but she was surrounded by all these other beautiful costumes. So it wasn't the moment that they were really hoping for. So they transfer this moment to her being revealed in the study against the, you know, cherry oak kind of wood panel books of Higgins study that is not glamorous at all, but suddenly she walks out seeming like a princess and they go off to the ball. So with that scene inserted, uh, that seems to have fixed all of their problems. Audiences loved it from the get-go, though. There are absolute raves getting back to New York. The buzz is building. Um, and they, you know, played a week in New Haven, a few weeks in Philadelphia, and then they're going to open on Broadway uh, in what, by all accounts, is one of the most historic nights in Broadway history. Yes, this was one of those shows that really was just a hit from the get-go. Um, it was a a smash and it overtook Oklahoma as the longest running show on the Broadway, which it held as a record for a while. Um, it was nominated for nine Tonys and won six. Um, it just was, it was a big hitty hit hit, as we say. And then ever since really it's been in the repertoire, it's been revived several times. There's been productions of it around the world. Um, it's been back on Broadway several times, most recently in the Lincoln Center production, um, which is just a few years ago. It's just something that it is always, always basically in the conversation when you're talking about great musicals. There was a film adaptation in 1964, which was a big hit, uh, which brought back Rex Harrison as Henry Higgins, but put Audrey Hepburn in as Eliza Doolittle because the producers felt that Julie Andrews might not be a big enough name, but it worked out for Julie Andrews because she was able to do Mary Poppins, which worked out very well for her. So I think it it all was okay, ultimately. Um, yeah, and basically it's just a, it's a Broadway classic that is always back because everybody loves it. Yeah, I don't think there's anything else to really say. I mean, it's an international sensation. I mean, it's, yeah. it is, I, 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 I hate to make the Hamilton comparison, but I really think that is probably the closest analogy to the international success that the show has. I mean, Julie Andrews and Rex Harrison take it to London along with Stanley Holloway. I mean, the cast album is like the yeah. top selling album for like four years on the charts and is only replaced by the London cast recording, which is in stereo. And then it's the number one and number two selling album. I mean, it is a huge ginormous success 
So Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside Wouldn't It Be Loverly? What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. All right, so let's dive into Wouldn't It Be Loverly. This is the real I want song of the show. It's not the first song in the show. We haven't really had an opening number and um, we have heard from Higgins before this moment. Higgins had Why Can't the English in which she's complaining about how bad um, the English are at teaching their children how to speak, how badly the English speak in general. So it's definitely not an I want song. It's not really a glimpse into his emotional status in any way, shape or form, but this definitely is. And it takes place when Eliza has had her encounter with Higgins and with Pickering. One of them has thrown her some money. And so uh, the people on the street with her, her friends, people she knows, are making fun of her for being rich all of a sudden. And uh, this song emerges. Keep in mind, I'm going to be listening to the original Broadway cast recording, which is Julie Andrews, the greatest, Ugh, the best. Um, and I'm going to be piecing it out in chunks as I usually do. So if you want to listen to the whole thing, go ahead and do so. But um, I will be playing a, a big chunk of the ending in uninterrupted. So if you're feeling like somewhere in between, it'll all be taken care of. All right, let's dive in. It's rather dull in town. I think I'll take me to Paris. Mm. The missus wants to open up the castle in Capri. Me doctor recommends a quiet summer by the sea. This is such a lovely beginning to this song. And of course, it's not Eliza. It's three of these Cockney guys on the street with her um, who aren't even given names, just one, two, and three, pretty much. Uh, pretending to be swells now that she has this money that Higgins threw at her. And it's a lovely start and a surprise. You really have no idea that you're going to get this acapella moment um, in this street scene, really. So introducing the song this way does a lot. Uh, it shows us a lot about this world, gives us a little context for Eliza that's going to be very important. These are poor people on the street, but they're clever. They're mocking the rich people very well, nicely skewering uh, how they spend their time, how blasé they are. Oh, they're so bored with England. They're going to go to Paris. And it shows also that this isn't a dark, dirty world that Eliza is coming from. She's not in peril. Her desire to get out of her situation isn't about desperation or fear, which could be a different version of this, that, you know, she's really desperate to get out of her life. She's not desperate to get out of her life because it's a matter of survival, really. These people are lovely. It's lovely to spend time with them. They're making beautiful music with nothing. They don't even have any accompaniment here. It's just they can they can make this out of thin air. So it's really giving us a sense of why she's wanting what she wants, which is not because it's coming from a desperation. It's something else. So we're going to hear a little bit more about that. And of course, this is such a nice contrast with Higgins, who has just had the whole song about how the English are uncultured animals who can't speak. This song definitely proves the opposite, um, which says a lot about him too, and how he's sort of a snob and kind of a jerk. And we're definitely all on their side <laughs> of the duo. And we also get this, the first occasion of the melody on Wouldn't It Be Loverly, which 
sounds with them like a sort of a wistful sigh. It's a lovely moment. All I want is a room somewhere far away from the cold night air with one So after this acapella section, we get these kind of whimsical reads, uh, which there's a line spoken over this. So we're not supposed to necessarily hear this in the clear as we do in this recording. Um, but these reads feel like a great introduction to Eliza. She's definitely a character who is well represented by reads. She's grounded. She's a bit sassy. She's not lyrical and emotional like strings would sort of indicate um, typically feminine in that way. And she's not bold and brassy. That's not her section either. So the reads feel really like the right place to be in a good introduction for her and this kind of nice, um, fun little spinning melody there. And her melody is similarly grounded. It's a really simple, basic rhythm. All I want is a room somewhere. Uh, it's laying out this picture for us. It's not fancy at all. It's just straightforward. It's all kind of laid out there. All of those moments are really hitting. And we're, we're learning about her there. She's not necessarily a complicated, fancy person. And this is not a complicated, fancy desire. She just wants a room somewhere. And I love when she gets more specific with this great cozy image of just a room somewhere with a chair. Oh, you just can see that chair. Um, and then, of course, when she gets to wouldn't it be lovely? And she goes really high on that. Wouldn't it be lovely? It's, she, it's like allowing herself the dream of wouldn't it be lovely? And of course, very smart lyrics on learner's part because oh, wouldn't it are both vowel sounds that are especially prominent when you're doing a Cockney accent. So as delightful as it is to hear her, it's also a little bit rough because we're just being sort of salted by those particular vowels and loverly itself is very smart because um, it, it's insisting that the word lovely, which most of us would say with two syllables is three syllables, right? We're getting that extra R in there. So very smart and a sort of smart shorthand for whoever is playing Eliza, because you, you basically can't sing the song without um, putting in that accent. It's written in there for you. Lots of chocolate for me to eat. Lots of cold, I can lots of eat. Warm face, warm hands, warm feet. I wouldn't be lovely. So we get this, another verse. And again, our, her wants are getting a little bit more specific. She's not singing about what the guys were singing about at the beginning of the song, trips to Capri and Paris, castles. Um, and she could, you know, she, she could have big lofty dreams. She could be dreaming of whatever she wants to, it's her dream. Um, but she just wants somewhere she can be warm mostly. I mean, there's so much devotion to that idea. She just wants somewhere where she's not gonna be cold. She's not gonna have cold hands, not gonna have cold feet. And then a little bit extra, she's gonna have a comfortable chair. She's gonna have some chocolate for her to eat. You know, it's 
it's such a fundamental thing, warmth to be warm. So it does indicate that her life is pretty uncomfortable a lot of the time, but she's also not dwelling on that. It's not presented as I want to get away from my freezing cold life. It's just this cozy image that she has in her mind, her, her little dream. Oh, I just love this so much. I think Oh So Loverly Sitting Absolutely Still is just a gorgeous, a gorgeously placed lyric. It's so lovely and good. First of all, it starts out really simple on the same note with a simple rhythm and another two vowels to show off that accent with Oh So, right? Um, or probably Ow Sow, really? That's terrible. I should never play Eliza. But then the melody takes this little dive down and then it flutters back up and around on absolutely, which is so smart and fun to throw blooming in the middle of that line because it's just, I mean, it's a, you can hear who she is in that line. Um, and to break the, that word up is just so fun. It just shows her kind of a reverence and the fact that she's she's got a bit of a mouth on her. And then it comes to a rest on lutely still just as she says, right? She's sitting absolutely still. And that line is grounded in staying in one place. So it's it's reflecting exactly what she's saying. But I just, ugh, I just love that little swirly dive around that that line does. And then of course, I will never budge till spring is equally like you can kind of feel her digging in her heels there. And then it gets a little bit swirly again, crept over my windowsill. It's such a a sweet way to say that spring is creeping over her windowsill. Clearly, Eliza is not a character who is well educated or has access to a lot of books, probably, or um, a lot of poetry. But we can hear in this that she's really got a wonderful imagination. And she is a bit of a writer in the way that she says this. It's not fancy. It's nothing pretentious. It's not intellectual. And yet there's something so sweet about saying, I would never budge till spring crept over me windowsill. We can just tell that the people around her love her for this. And we love her for this. She's just charming. Someone's resting on my So this verse is so interesting to me. It's definitely bringing in something that we haven't heard before because she's singing about wanting someone romantically. So it's a little bit beyond just wanting a, a room of her own that's warm where she can sit in a big comfortable chair and eat chocolate and just not have to do anything or go anywhere and just have the luxury of sitting there and being comfortable. Um, this is something else. She wants someone being comfortable with her. And it's certainly framed that way. It's certainly framed as contentment and safety because she says someone who takes good care of her is what she wants. Um, although in a slightly strange way, I mean, someone resting his head on her knee sounds almost a little bit more like a child or a dog. It's a little bit strange 
to present a romantic partner in that way. But also I think this says a little bit about Eliza. She's not someone who has super romantic dreams in a conventional way. She just wants to be safe and cozy a little bit. This is kind of the only time we'll ever hear about this. We really only get any glimpse into Eliza's romantic life or desires in song, never in the script. So it's a bit of an outlier. And it does let us know that she's got a tender core and that she does want to be with someone ultimately. And it also sets up a little bit the contrast. We know the musical theater rule that whenever someone sings about their ideal person, they'll end up with the opposite. So here's that fodder because Higgins, if indeed you choose to think of him as a romantic partner for her, which is a big debate about this show, it really could go either way. It's left ambiguous. You can stage it different ways. Uh, Higgins is definitely not this person that she's describing. He's not going to be sitting resting his head on anybody's knee. He's definitely not going to take good care of her. It's not peaceful in the way that that she describes what she wants. Higgins is combative, kind of a jerk. You know, whatever partnership that they will have will definitely be full of sparring and um, not safe and warm and contented in the way she describes here. So it's, it's probably intended to um, add a little spice to that particular debate um, in the same way that what we'll talk about later with them um, I could have danced all night is is adding another sort of romantic, potentially romantic layer there. Uh, there's a lot more going on in the romantic and sex lives of these characters in the songs than there are in the script, which is kind of an interesting, unusual thing. But of course, we get that lovely lilting and repeated loverly here. Like she's really in the reverie of this particular dream. So it's given a little bit more weight than the other ones. And it feels like it's a little bit more interior for her to be revealing this, which feels right because, you know, she started with the sort of simplest thing and gotten a little bit deeper here. And then the rest of the song is basically a big old dance moment um, for her to, to have with these other people around and then uh, a re repetition of the beginning. So I'm just going to play that through because it's lovely and why not? Yeah. 
so sweet. I mean, I don't think the rest of the song necessarily particularly adds anything um, in terms of storytelling or character. Uh, you get to see again how lovely these people are. Uh, Eliza gets to to be around and um, interacting with all these people in a way that allows us to see her uh, not on the defensive, which is a way that we have to see Eliza most of the time in the show because um, as soon as she goes to Higgins, she's going to be placed in the position of being the sort of object of Higgins' uh, experimentations and frustrations because she can't get the the new language. And um, so it's going to really change. So I think it's very smart of them to give us this real moment with her where we can see who she really is when she doesn't have to be yelling at Higgins, <laughs> which is someone who is soft, who has a real softness and who has very simple desires that are uh, sort of heartbreaking in how simple they are because every human being should be able to have a warm place where they can sit and every human being should be able to uh, spend a winter sitting in a chair sometimes rather than constantly having to be on their feet. Um, but of course that's not necessarily uh, true and not a reality for uh, poor people in much of the world and especially here. So um, it's a very, very smart song. It's a very sweet song. And it's just, as it's called, it's a lovely song that gives us a lot to go on and then uh, gets us where we need to go. So this song is absolutely loverly. And that brings us to one of our favorite segments, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues the show faces, both internally and externally. So as we've alluded to in previously within the episode, there is this question of, is the show, who is the protagonist of the show? Is Eliza the protagonist of the show? Is Henry Higgins the protagonist of the show? Are they both protagonists of the show? Are neither of them protagonists? And I think depending on where you look and who you talk to in their perspective, that's going to change. There is probably not one nice, neat answer to it, but I do think that identifying that is central to how productions are staged, how people interpret the various productions, various adaptations, whatnot. Um, I mean, it, it goes to the heart of so many of the problems that are then discussed when talking about My Fair Lady. So I would say, personally speaking, I would say that Eliza Doolittle is the protagonist of the show. I would say that we are following her journey, that ultimately this is Eliza's story. Now, the counterpoint to that is that it, I think, Annika, like, I'm, I'm going to let you, let, why don't I take the side of it being Eliza's story, you take the side of it being Higgins' story, and we can kind of go from there. Because I will say I totally see both sides. I totally see how people have this debate. And even as I say I'm going to, say it's Eliza's story. I'm like, but Higgins is like a major part of that. It's called My Fair Lady. Like, so, but I guess go ahead and make your argument as to why this is Henry Higgins' show. Certainly. Well, I do think that, as you said, all of these issues are kind of intertwined in a really interesting way. So this is definitely one of them. To me, if you look at the classical definition of what a protagonist is, the person whose journey we follow and who 
learns something changes by the end of the show, then to me, actually, there's no question that it's Higgins because no matter how you feel about the ending in terms of it being a romance or not, it feels to me like the person who has the realization at the end of the show to some degree is Higgins. He sort of has the 11 o'clock number. Um, it is his moment when he realizes that he has actually sort of let Eliza into his life in an emotional way, whether that's romantic or not. I feel like he dominates the story really. And it's funny when you talk about um, Rex Harrison feeling like his character went away in act two, I feel like Eliza is the person that we sort of lose track of to a certain degree. And aside from um, Wouldn't It Be Loverly, uh, none of her songs really are actually about her personal journey uh, in a way that I find a little bit unsatisfying. Uh, she has a song about how much she hates Henry Higgins. She has a song about being frustrated with Freddie. Um, she has a song about, you know, I could have danced all night, but like at a certain point, she says very interesting things in scenes that I wish we could have as eternal songs, but we don't really get these internal moments with her after a certain point in the show. And we do get them with Higgins, which means to me, Higgins ends up being the one that I'm tracking a lot more than I'm tracking Eliza. Again, this is something that shifts really, especially with casting. Um, I've seen it go both ways where you have uh, a very dominant Eliza. So it really feels like a show about both of them or about her more than about him because she's able to sort of take the stage in a, in a more prominent way. I've seen it happen where you have a slightly weaker Eliza and then it really feels like she's a secondary character in the show. But to me, Higgins is, is the protagonist. And I do think that in general, this show, and again, this is another intertwined thing. This show feels a little bit like, like its creators were really infatuated with these male characters. I think Doolittle is another example of a character who has much more stage time than the script would necessarily dictate, which I think would be better spent on, you know, a moment for Eliza trying to figure out what she's going to do after this. There are things that now with my 2020 brain, I would say, um, and not even like my 2020 feminism brain, just with my 2020 script dramaturg brain, we're missing pieces from Eliza's story that I think we need. And we're getting a lot of some of these other characters that we might not need to such degree. So anyway, that's a very long explanation for me saying, I think Higgins is the protagonist of the show. So, and how I would counter that argument is I would say that we are on Eliza's journey in, in terms of her exterior transformation. We get more of an exterior transformation from Eliza, we get an interior transformation from Higgins on some level. Although I think you could, I think it's debatable whether or not he actually changes at the end of the show. He may realize something, but is that change? I think with the ambiguity of the ending, I would say. And I'd also counter your point that I, I've always thought of I Could Have Danced All Night as a moment of self-realization and a look what I can accomplish moment. And that's not even with a 2020 or even this conversation popped up a lot around the uh, recent revival on Broadway and the Me Too movement and how we've um, portrayed women in media and in literature and drama and how we men and vice versa. But I, I've always thought of, I've never thought of I Could Have Danced All Night as a love song about how much she loved Henry Higgins, uh, how, how much she loves Henry Higgins. I've always thought about 
it being that moment in like even from when I was like a young little like didn't know I was gay kid like I always thought this was I could do something I look what I can do and look the look at how that can make me feel I I could have celebrated this all night I because he I I've sought to be be worthy of his attention which yes is problematic in a way that like that's society on a certain level like we value what others think of us right but that she she was able to climb that mountain and even this person who she thought would never have said you climbed the mountain has said you've climbed the mountain and i've always thought of the song that way so i guess but i take your point that in act two the only kind of moment that is interior to Eliza where we see her interior um, feelings that I would say are illustrated in, I mean, they're illustrated in show me on a certain level because she's saying, show me something and, and whatnot, but we're not getting like how it makes her feel. We're not getting that kind of thing is what I think I'm hearing you say. But so the moment in act two where we get that from her is really when she goes back to Covent Garden and no one recognizes her and she's now a transformed person and no one recognizes her. But that is not a musical moment. It is a, it is a book moment. So I, I take your point that we don't get that from her and that in some ways, yes, in Act 2, she ends up going, you know, Without You is her song to Higgins, right? That is this look at what I can do. I am my own independent person. And from that perspective, we are looking at it from Higgins' point of view. Once he gets him to him, the show shifts and it is all from his perspective, basically. Um, so there is this interesting juxtaposition, whereas like earlier in the show with Just You Wait and with the progression of her journey, we really, I would say we are on her journey, that Higgins is a part of her journey. And then the table flips. It's an interesting thing, kind of like what we talked about with Music Man, I don't I think we talked about this with Music Man, but for the majority of Act One, we Harold Hill is who we are following. And then Marion sings My White Knight, and suddenly Marion is now the driving force of our story. So there is but I think in that case, I don't think there's much debate as to whether or not, you know, she's the protagonist versus Harold being the protagonist. I think there's much more a debate to be had in this show about that. But it, it does, it goes into the, why it's all interconnected is because I think if you approach the show as it being the stories about Henry Higgins, I think the, the charges of misogyny and the charges of a lot of the problematic behavior that we now um, have much more clarity on as a society and as people, the more like, oh, she's just our little plaything. We don't care about her as a human. We just care about our little experiment. That suddenly becomes a lot clearer and that she is just an object to him. And the show seems to kind of endorse that on some level when you get into the weeds, if you're viewing it as his story. I think if you're viewing it as her story, what I would say is that like he is kind of an idiot on, on an emotional level but she is a strong enough person that it doesn't impact how she, I mean, it, it does impact her, but it is not, um, it is by her own grace that she forgives him for his shortcomings, I think would be the, the counterpoint to that. So I, that didn't really set up anything for you to respond to really, Annika, but that's kind of how I take it. Well, but let's dive in on that. Cause I do think that these are, 
it's a very complicated discussion. And I think, first of all, I think it's, you know, you have to differentiate when you're talking about this show about um, whether it is a sexist show or whether it is a show partially about sexism. Um, I think it is a show definitely about sexism. I don't think there's any world in which we're not supposed to think that Henry Higgins is an asshole to her. A lot of the show. Um, I do think that it depends a little bit on how it, the ending goes, you know, whether how much she realizes. I do think that I've grown accustomed to her face in any good productions should feel like he's really having a realization about something. Um, so I, and I, and I think that there's a lot in this script, so a lot of which is inherited from Shaw about very, very interesting questions about a woman's role in society. It's funny, I, whenever I see this show in recent years as an adult person, what I find myself thinking of most is what Ar Eliza articulates, which is you've kind of created me as this monster because she can't go back to selling flowers on the street she doesn't want to get married, which is something she articulates a few times in the show. You know, that question of you have, there's no place in society for a woman who is now like her because she cannot be, and she doesn't want to marry and just be taken care of. She doesn't want to be, she can't be an aristocrat. She can't go be a flower girl. She, there's so few options. So I do think that there's a lot about a misogynist society, which I don't think means that it is a sexist show. I think a show that portrays a sexist society is different from a sexist show. That being said, I do think that the writers not coming at this from inside the skin of Eliza Doolittle in some ways is a little bit problematic because when I read it, it it just felt to me like they had more fun and they better knew and understood the character of Alfie Doolittle and the character of Henry Higgins and his friendship with Pickering. There is something that happens sometimes when men are writing women characters where they get to a certain point where they just don't understand how to do that. They can't quite create a fully realized human being in the same way that they can very easily create a fully realized human being with male characters. And I'm not saying that Eliza Doolittle isn't a fantastic character, but I do think that after a certain point, it feels a little bit like they're not interested in answering some of the questions that are raised by her story. And so they leave her a little bit in a kind of strange limbo for me. And not even in the ambiguity of the ending, I just mean in terms of like, what is she going to do with herself, you know? Um, in some ways, it's like a little bit of a Bechdel test question, which of course is the, the test of whether a, a piece of art has two women in it who talk to each other about something other than a man. Um, this show doesn't really pass the Bechdel test because you have almost exclusively scenes of Eliza with Pickering and Higgins, which obviously makes sense, that's the story. Um, the moments that she has with other women, I mean, most notably Mrs. Higgins is still about mostly Higgins. Um, so in some ways, I just, I feel like this show denies me a bit of interiority for Eliza that I really crave. Um, and it frustrates me a little bit when I'm watching it or reading it because I do kind of feel like there's time that we could spend with her that we're just not really spending with her. Um, 
And there's moments that we're spending with her where it's just about how angry she is at Higgins about her relationship with Higgins or her relationship with Freddie or how everyone in the world interacts with her. That still doesn't mean like we're getting under her skin in the way that I'd like. So I think that's why people are constantly, you know, I think it goes well beyond the idea of like, are they a romantic couple or not? Because to me, like that's definitely a question that you have to answer if you're doing production. That's probably one of the main ones because you're dealing with a, with a very particular relationship between two very strong personalities. But to me, there's a lot of other questions in this script that you kind of have to wrestle with if you're gonna do this in some way. So if you're doing this show and people feel like what Higgins is saying about women or what Alfie Doolittle is saying about women is accurate and not a comment on society, then I think you're really failing because that's not how Shaw intended it, certainly. I don't think that's how Lerner and Lowe intended it. But I do think that that in the musical, they allowed themselves to uh, get a little bit caught up in this other sort of romantic world where it's very easy to just kind of slip past that stuff and never kind of nail that point. I think it's all fair and valid and very good. Uh, what I and my comment on top of it would be, I think on some level, she yes, she is always defined in terms of society by her relationship to a certain man, whether that's her dad, whether that's Pickering, whether that's Freddie, whether that's Higgins, right? She's always kind of defined in in that circumstance. And I do think that the show doesn't it certainly doesn't answer the question of what she should do but i do think that we care enough about her as a character that we do wonder and we do ask ourselves that question it it may not be the grand purpose of the show which is a you know we, we can critique and talk about as you so eloquently have but i do think it is something that we that sticks with us even beyond so i do think on some level they accomplished it but and what i would say the flip of it is i think moss hart very much thought about this as a show that was about eliza's transformation and i think some of that push and pull that we feel is because of their varying points of view on what was interesting to the story. And I do think that that probably is why that original production struck that balance was because they had that influence still very much present in the show. And when it comes to Doolittle, I think part of that is like the, just the ability of in that original production, like building it around certain performers who they knew could deliver certain things. And now with its age, we start to see, well, do we really need to have this much time with that character? I'm not really sure we need that much time. Like, so yes, yeah. I, I, all that is to say, I totally echo and I, w I would agree with everything you said. It's, it's just something I think everyone has to be aware of when you're entering into casting and rehearsing this show. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And just to be clear, I mean, I, I always think we care about Eliza. Like, I think she's a great character. And when you have a really good actor playing Eliza, they usually can fill in a lot of that stuff. So there's there's a lot of storytelling that happens thanks to the performer. What I just wish is that there was a little bit more of that actually built into the script um, in a real way. Which is not to say, I mean, this is a brilliant show and I love it. Um, but I I was kind of surprised when I read the script again to find myself thinking, God, we really just kind of, we get a little bit hijacked by these other characters in a way that I think if I had a dramaturgical note of this classic musical that, you know, like I'm sure they're rolling in their grapes waiting for my opinion, but like, 
you know, I would be a little bit like, let's come maybe, can we maybe just go back there a little bit? And, and what frustrates me too, is that it's in the scenes and then it's not developed really, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, and it's a good point because, um, I would say act one brilliantly sets up the ability for them to do that. And then they don't yeah. do it. They fall to conventions of the time in terms of get me to the church on time being a 10 minute production number, even a hymn to him, which even though it has a fun creation story, every time I get to it, I'm a little bit like, Oh my God, we have another one of these. Didn't he already kind of do this next one? And, yeah. and so we don't get that internal moment with Eliza, which could be really lovely and could be, kind of where we rise. But I then wonder, like, is that ambiguity, unfortunately, kind of part of what makes the show interesting and to actually, I don't know, do they would they have failed epically if they tried? So rather than try, they just didn't. I, and, and that's defending something I have no idea about that is, you know, that is very much conjecture and kind of wishful thinking on my part, maybe, um, to make to for the show to continue to stay relevant. I don't I don't know. But I do think I hear what you're saying. And I, and I think, I think you're very right. In defense of my other argument that they didn't feel they were capable of illustrating that moment for Eliza, they let Shaw do it in dialogue, because that's all Shaw dialogue. And they knew that Shaw had already tapped into that. And so they just wanted to they, with the score, they sought to express the emotions within the characters and to dig deeper. Now, yes, they did not dig deeper with Eliza. They chose to not do that. And so that is a a blemish, a, a note, a a very valuable thing to think about and to understand. Uh, but I think there is also a strong case to make that they just let Shaw make that case for them because they knew that he had already done it so well. Yeah. Well, it's funny because my hot spicy take on this show is actually pretty much exactly that. I I find that although this is a glorious score, that the songs of My Fair Lady are sometimes fighting with the script. I think that there's songs that say things about the characters that the characters in the dialogue have not expressed and or really don't share. I mean, the, the one I can think of the most is, um, you know, I think it's interesting that you can, like your debate about I could have danced all night is a really good one. Like, certainly that's a great way to interpret that song, especially if you are not going for the romantic element. I think a lot of people would find that that is the kind of leading moment of her falling in love with Higgins if you're going to go down that path, because she does say, you know, when he began to dance with me, I could have danced all night, which is obviously very easy to interpret as he was dancing with me and it was just like about the dancing with him. But again, the script has almost no moments where they are having a moment together in a romantic way. The other one that I think is really interesting is that Eliza is very particular about um, sex in terms of her perception as a, a flower lady that she wants to make it very clear and she does several times over the course of the show that she was not a prostitute, even though I think a lot of people would assume that a girl who sells flowers on the street might also be a prostitute because you have few options when you are a poor woman in this era. Um, so she's very clear about that. She doesn't want people to think she's a prostitute. She will not do anything that is, she will not trade herself in terms of her body or her emotions because she has the same feelings about 
marrying someone, she responds very badly to that and says like, I, I didn't sell myself on the street when I was a flower girl and I'm not gonna do it um, in a marriage context either. So I find it a little bit odd when she leaves Higgins house and runs into Freddie and then has a whole song about, uh, don't stop talking to me, but just kiss me, just throw your arms around me and kiss me. Because to me, the, the Eliza that's been set up in the script is very clearly someone who would not risk um, any impropriety in that way and seems to have really no interest in a kind of romantic entanglement, especially with Freddie, who she doesn't seem that interested in at all. So there's moments where it just, it just feels like it's fighting itself in an odd way. And I, in some ways, yes, you could absolutely make the argument that uh, Lerner and Lowe are choosing to use the music to show sides of the characters that are not often seen in the script. But I do think, especially with Eliza, that sometimes the score is going to a place that's a little bit more conventional for these characters, that their portrayal in the script is actually not going to. So it's an interesting balancing act. And sometimes I find that it just feels to me like they're not quite in sync in a way that they need to be. That's such an interesting point, Annika. I've really honestly never thought about it that way. So it's rocking my world a little bit. I have to go away and think about that, but it's a really interesting thought. That means it's time for our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we talk about some of our favorite things about My Fair Lady. So first things first, Annika, who is your favorite character in My Fair Lady? My favorite character in My Fair Lady is Mrs. Higgins. A great choice. A great choice. Please expand on why that would be your choice. Uh, she is a total badass. I think that she is a character that's actually quite important to the balance of the show because she is obviously the second most prominent woman in the show, but she's also a woman who is totally independent, who uh, is very smart, who sees things very clearly, is able to welcome Eliza into the fold, even though she's not the right class. So that there's, it's very easy that that character could be like just a snob. Um, and she's not, she's very thoughtful. She <laughs> sees her son very clearly. She does not particularly like him, which is kind of hilarious. I just, I, I love that character and I love what that character is able to do especially for Eliza um, and the way that she is able to see Eliza, which really nobody else in the show can see her. Um, and I think that's just a very important factor to have. So I love her. She's awesome. I totally agree about Mrs. Higgins being a, an awesome, awesome, underappreciated character. Uh, true to form, I'm. I my favorite character is Eliza. I love Eliza. She's amazing. Dodoy, I mean, come on. Uh, but my second place goes to Colonel Pickering because I love Colonel Pickering. I think he's such a delight. I, I, I think he is the glue that actually the secret glue that holds the show together and makes it so enjoyable. And I don't think people take into account how important it is to have a good Colonel Pickering. That's often like, a, oh, just cast whoever, but like you must have a good actor uh, as Colonel Pickering who can like really, I mean, I, so anyway, I love, I also love Colonel Pickering. Elias is my favorite, but Colonel Pickering gets a, a lovely second place for me. 
Excellent choices. And yes, you're right. Especially since Henry Higgins is so rough a lot of the time, you kind of need someone to be there to say no to him sometimes. So Annika, what would be your favorite song in the glorious score of My Fair Lady? It is a glorious score, but my favorite is and has always been On the Street Where You Live, which I think is such a beautiful song. You know, the bit of that song that gets stuck in my head, like probably the most often is now I know the part that they wrote like very last minute to make the song work, but that very opening bit, the when she mentioned how her aunt bit off the spoon. Yeah. I think it's so delightful. <laughs> and it's not like on, it's like barely on the recordings almost. I feel like like no one, and mm-hmm. it's such an audition song that people sing like all the time and they just do, I have often walked, but that opening bit is so charming and lovely. <laughs> It's very charming. It's a beautiful song. What about you? What's your favorite song? Uh, so this is going to sound like uh, probably out of left field because I, I do love I Could Have Danced All Night and I think it's a glorious song. I listen to it all the time. But I love Just You Wait. I don't I It is inextricable from the show. It is like so specific to scene, character, moment, like thing. But the whole like the whole fantasy sequence of her like executing Henry Higgins and how mad she is about all of it. I find so lovely and charming. And there's something about that, like the falling, the falling notes at the beginning of it that go into her anger. It's like, you're like, Oh, we're going to zoom in on Eliza's anger. Like there's just a whole thing about it that I find really, really uh, infectious and and fun. So I've and I've always loved that number. I mean, I love the score in general. It's a great score, as we've said. But uh, just you wait has to get my has to get my favorite, just so I can can t- tip of the hat to just you wait. Strong choice, strong choice for sure. So, what is your favorite miscellaneous thing about My Fair Lady? I love everything about the Ascot scene. I love it. I love the scene. I think it's so funny to watch her trying to be fancy while also talking about her mother, her aunt being killed. I mean, the comedy is very strong. Um, The comedy is also, it's such a good skewering of all of those aristocrats when they just kind of are talking about how exciting it is. And then they're so blase looking out at the horses. Um, It's a really beautiful comedy scene. And also it, always has the best costumes. I'm someone who loves especially a large ridiculous hat and this number always has large ridiculous hats. I just, it's all of my favorite things. It's my favorite part of the show always. And I love it so much. And I mean, it really is such a brilliant example of a true like musical comedy scene that like the jokes are written. So it is so about characters, situation and things, but it is expertly set up and it's almost i don't want to say it's impossible to mess it up but it is so expertly like i and not to give too much credit to moss hart but i feel like that scene in particular is like one of those places where his old school like comedy instincts he was like no no here's how we do this here's how we set this up like there's something about it it just is so old school like Mm -hmm. this is how you do a comedy scene It, it is so good yeah, I think you're right. It's really a masterclass. And 
I think it's funny no matter which character you're looking at, you know, whether you're watching Pickering and Higgins just kind of losing their minds with this kind of going wrong or Mrs. Higgins, who obviously is like <laughs> shocking her social friends. <laughs> you know, I think there's just, it, the whole thing is a study in setting up contrasts and expectations and it's brilliant. So my favorite miscellaneous thing, so Aska could almost tag on to, like it tags on to my favorite thing. I love, and I know I just talked about Just You Wait, but I love the sequence of Just You Wait to the Servant's Chorus, like as a passage of time montage sequence about her elocution training. And again, masterclass comedy scenes from like the bit about her, the, the ha ha and the flame and the marbles and the whole, like that whole progression to the euphoric reign in Spain that is such, I mean, the fact that this number is just about her having said this, like mastered the English language, it is that like miracle worker, like water moment, but musical. It, it's such a euphoric, exciting moment that only works in musical theater, right? Like that is like the magic of what musicals can do and what musical theater can do, I think, is like that. To then the celebration of Eliza in I Could Have Danced All Night that like is basically like a stretch of like 20, 25 minutes of theater probably when you include all of that. I mean, maybe it's not that long. Maybe I have like made it too long in my mind, but what a brilliant example of economically spanning time, doing a montage sequence in an entertaining, fantastic way that isn't just about like one song. It's it's such a, it's a sequence that works so well. I just think it, it is a, an A plus sequence of musical theater that is, I think, part of what makes My Fair Lady work so well in the way that it does. And that brings us to one of our final segments, Corner of the Sky. Gotta find my corner of the sky. Where we talk about the show's place in the musical theater canon. So obviously this is an A-list classic. It is one of the big dogs, right? But I do think we can't underestimate how much of a cultural impact it had on America and musical theater and keeping Broadway as a part of the dominant cultural conversation in a way that we talk about Hamilton now, but it really was a Hamilton of its time, as uh, as I think I said earlier. Additional to that, it is kind of the last of this tradition of old-fashioned music being the driving factor of what Broadway music is considered, that kind of operetta not opera, but operetta kind of style. Like it is the last kind of that that really transcends. It's the last of that style that transcends beyond Broadway audiences. And of course, coupling with that, I do think that the basically turning Julie Andrews into a star and into a kind of household name, I also don't think we can underestimate that. And obviously I anyone who knows me know, knows that I have a great affection and uh, admiration of Julie Andrews, not only for her talent, but for who she is as a human, but she has been a dominant cultural force. And I mean, how many sing-alongs have been led because of Julie Andrews? I mean, so there's that part of it. But centrally, I think what its actual corner of the sky is, 
is that it expands the possibilities of material that can be adapted into a musical successfully. In terms that you've got this old classic Shaw play that you're using a lot of to then tell a musical play story and this kind of like that it doesn't have to be a boy girl romance story and then a secondary version of that and then like all these excuses for production numbers that musicals can do more than that and i do think that that is a it is not an adult musical in the sense that only adults can enjoy it or it's only appropriate for adults but it is a very mature musical in the way that it approaches its characters and just the, I don't want to say hoity-toity, but there is an elevated sense that it gives and almost like legitimizes the musical on a, on a different level than Rodgers and Hammerstein had done previously, I think. Um, but Annika, I mean, there are so many things we could call My Fair Lady's Corner of the Sky. I mean, it is a big dog, as I said. So what do you think its Corner of the Sky is? I think everything you said is absolutely 100% right. Um, I think it also, you know, Eliza Doolittle and Henry Higgins are both really titanic characters in the musical theater and um, potentially because of their Shavian, which is what we say as the adjective for Shaw, which is always interesting, um, their Shavian DNA, they are uh, meaty, meaty parts um, that I think are, are great, really, important parts for musical theater actors to play. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a, it's an amazing score. It's an amazing script. There's like, it just is, as you said, there's so much. I, I think every, I'm just gonna leave it with everything you said and lots of other things. It's, it's a great classic show with a weird title. Well, that wraps it up for our deep dive into My Fair Lady in what may be our longest episode yet. Um, but um, uh, that means it's time for Annika to give us a clue about what comes next. What comes next? So Annika, what is our clue for the next musical we'll be putting in the spotlight? This is an interesting clue. So this show marked the first time an African-American actress took over a role originated by somebody white without changing the show to an all black cast. You know, I can't say I'm totally surprised by that fun fact when it comes to this show, because that's very much the world of this show, but it is still kind of surprising on a certain level because there's some specificity within the show. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Although I will say this is a show that was groundbreaking on a few levels. This is not what it's usually known for, but that's just one of the elements of it that makes sense when you're looking at the kind of spirit of the show. Well, until then, we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. This podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Burry Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit goodspeed.org. See you next time!